Hey, I'm Michael, online pastor at Silverdale Baptist Church, and I'm excited to welcome you to our podcast. Now, after you listen to this episode, I hope you'll stick around for just a moment. I'll be sharing about some resources we have for you, as well as a few things going on at Silverdale right now that we would love for you to be a part of. Now, I really hope this podcast is just what you need today to help you in your relationship with Jesus. always so good to see all of you. I hope you're having a great week. I just want to get started, so let's jump right into it. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to ask you to grab your Bible and open your, if you have a Bible app, you can open your Bible app as well. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 today. We're just going to be looking at two verses. It's Philippians 4 verses 8 and verse 9, and you can follow along in your study guide as well and take notes if you desire. So um, we're in this new series that we've entitled, I Will. I Will, Five Decisions That Will Change Your Life. And what we're doing is we're looking over five weeks at five different decisions that if you make them, it will indeed change your life. life. Last week we began and we looked at, I Will, Study God's Word. And it's true, right? If you read God's Word, you study God's Word, you apply God's Word, you submit to God's Word, it will indeed change your life. If you didn't hear that message, if you weren't here, you can go back and look at it on Vimeo or our podcast. But today we're going to continue by looking at something else. We're going to look at our second decision, and that is, I will think correctly. In other words, I will think biblically. And I will say this, if you decide that you're going to base your decisions on the Bible, you apply it, it will indeed change your life. It's going to change the life of those around you. It'll change your life. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is addressing today in our text, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. So here's what I want to do. I want to read the text and then we as God's people, we're just going to kind of walk through it and, and see, see how the Apostle Paul, what he would have us know about thinking correctly. So let's begin. Verse 8, I'm just going to read it. Finally, brothers, I'm just talking to us Christians. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable... If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, here we go, think about these things, verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and God and the God of peace will be with you. Come on, man, that's a tremendous verse. 
I don't know, maybe when you hear this or maybe when you read this, you look at it and you say, think about these things. You, you, you look at it and you say, think about these things. And you list all these things that he would have us think about. And maybe you read that and you think, man, that sounds lovely. That sounds like something I would like to do. But you know, the reality is my life is so busy and there's so much going on that it can be quite difficult to think about anything of importance throughout the day, right? Life often gets in our way of thinking deeply. It does. I would say this. I would say busyness is one of the greatest enemies of thinking. Thinking deeply to be sure. In fact, let me share this with you. You may already know this. You may be ahead of the curve, but, but I read this. Do you know where many people say or report that they have some of their deepest thoughts? Let me, does anyone know? In the, in the shower. In the shower. People say, it's, in fact, there's a word for it. It's called shower thoughts. You write that down. Seriously, write it down. You Google that. You may say that. It's, it's an actual word. There's actual studies on this. Then when people get in the shower, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, you go in, I don't know, a big dummy, you come out a genius, no. Somehow you get in the shower, because your, your life is so busy, you get in the shower, and you close the door or whatever, and you start the motion of, of taking a shower, something that you know, it's routine, you know how to do it, and as you're taking a shower, you're, you're able to start thinking, somehow your mind starts connecting dots, simply because you've taken time to kind of get alone by yourself. But it doesn't have to be shower in a shower. Shower thoughts can also be maybe you've had this when you're driving your car, maybe coming home from work. Like your day's so busy, you haven't thought on anything at all of importance, but you get in your car, you hear some song, and as you're driving, you start connecting all these dots in your head. I don't know. Maybe some people say report it that showers and other people say an exercise. Maybe you're a runner, and maybe some people report on their some people say on their fifth mile they start really thinking I don't know I haven't made it that far I imagine I might think a lot at the fifth mile but either way that's what's going on here and so we want to we want to be like we don't we get in these situations where we need to be thinking correctly we need to be thinking rightly we need to be thinking biblically but then our life is so full of so much activity that we don't think biblically and when your life is full of activities what we tend to do what tends to happen is we don't think biblically. Instead, we begin to think with what? Our gut. We go with our gut. Or you start to think with your emotions. Or you just say, whatever is most practical, right? Whatever is pragmatic. But the Apostle Paul is telling us in these two verses, no. No. Not for the Christian. We don't think by our gut feelings. We don't think by our emotions. We don't think by whatever is most practical practical. I will say this just real quickly. Whatever is most practical is not necessarily biblical. You can read the Bible. Oftentimes what is biblical is some of the most unpractical things that you can imagine. So once again, we're not to think that way. Our thinking, the decisions we make, the things that we think upon are to be based on the Word of God. And that's what we're supposed to live by, think by, and live in light of. And so in this passage, I believe the Apostle Paul gives us four things that we Christians are to be thinking about. And I don't want us thinking by our gut. I don't want us to be thinking about our emotions. I want us to think biblically. So let's look at these four things. 
Let's start this way. Um, first thing we're going to see is the Apostle Paul says we are to think on the Christian life. We're to think on the Christian life. And I'm going to pick up, we're going to go back, but I'm going to pick up at the end of verse 8. The last four words on verse 8, you get this command. I want you to notice this command given to Christians. He says, think about these things. You can underline, you can circle this word, think about. It's, it's an imperative. It, it's a command. The Greek is legesimai, right? It means, to, it means, Christian, you are to dwell on these things. You're to evaluate these things. You're to consider these things. You're to calculate these things. You see, proper thinking is not an option for the Christian life. The Bible leaves no doubt that people's lives are the product of the things that they think upon. Proverbs declares, for as he thinks within himself, what? So is he. That's what it says. Now, this command to think about these things. I believe, I'm going to work this out. I believe this is a call for all of us believers. It's a call to what I would call Christian meditation. Christian meditation, right? We're to think upon, we're to dwell on, we're to consider what God has said in his word. If you're going to grow as a Christian, we are to be locked in a pattern of meditating on God's word, reflecting on it, thinking deep, deeply on it. It's a call, this think upon, this command, it's a call to Christian meditation. Now, here's what I want to say. When I say meditation, I understand that because we've seen um, kind of pop culture and all these books, you may immediately start thinking about some sort of Eastern mysticism or something like that, right? When I talk about meditation, you may start thinking about sitting on the ground with your legs crossed and maybe, med- and maybe kind of this, this kind of mantra or something like that. That is not at all what Christian meditation is. It's completely different. It's completely different. Eastern meditation, this mysticism, if you're to study and you're to look into it, their primary objective, they would say, is that you are to rid your mind of thoughts, right? And then you're supposed, they, they will say, they will say the end result, the end goal is to get to self-realization. That is not at all what Paul is saying, right? That's not Christian meditation. Christian meditation is you are to fill your mind with something. What, what are we going to fill our minds with? The Word of God. That's Christian meditation, right? You set aside time, you think deeply on God's Word. You fill up with it. You roll it around in your mind. You put weight on it. You evaluate it. Just over and over and over again. Um, let me give you, I thought about this, um, just real quick, let me give you um, an example of what we're called to, this thinking upon, this dwelling upon, this meditating upon. Um, I'll just give you a quick example. Let's use, um, let's use John 3.16. It's a verse that many of us, if not most of us, will be familiar with, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, all right? And it goes on, and you can meditate on all that as well. But what you would do, if you're going to set aside some time to meditate on God's word, you would take a text like that, and you'd get in a quiet place, maybe in your car. I don't know if you're driving, you can do that, or a quiet closet or someplace in your house. Maybe even go on a walk. 
And you just think on it. So I, I do it. I do. For God so loved the world. Let that roll around in your head. Let it kind of saturate you. Repeat it. For God so loved the world. Think on it. Feel the weight of it. And then keep reading. Keep, keep, keep thinking. For God so loved the world that it caused him to do something. What did it cause him to do? For God so loved the world that he gave. Come on, just think on that. Repeat it. Let it just saturate. Continue to do it. So God's great love for the world caused him to give something. What did his love cause him to give? His only begotten son. Spend time on that. That's Christian meditation. Let it permeate, permeate your mind. Let it permeate your heart. Let it color the way that you see things. You see, the problem is we got a lot of us going around letting television and radio and all the world color the way that we see things. And Paul says, no, don't think on those things. Don't put weight on those things. Think about God. Think about God's word. Meditate on it. Let God's word color the way that you interact with people. Let God's word color the way you think about things. That is a call to what I would say is Christians, Christian meditation. Church, if you go home with anything today, I want you to go home with this. God commands his people to think. I would go so far to say willful ignorance is a sin. Let's think. Think on these things. Meditate on these things. Let these things live richly and dwell in our minds. All right? So that's the first thing. You think on the Christian life. Now I want to go back in to the beginning of verse 8, and we're going to see the second thing he tells us to think on. This is the list. He says, think on God-honoring truths. He lists them. Oh, this is glorious. Here's what he says. Finally, brothers, that's male or female, believers, those whom have been saved by God, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's what we just looked at. So the second thing is we're to cultivate our desires and affections by pointing our desires and our affections to things that are true, things that are right, things that are good. Notice it says, think on, it's that command, what is true. Church, think on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. In other words, when you are bombarded by powerful desires that are enticing you to think on things that are either wrong or trivial, Paul says you're to fight it. But you don't fight it with nothing. You fight it by thinking upon these great things. You see, when you are bombarded by these things enticing you, you're bombarded by all these trivial pursuits, you're you're bombarded by all these these wrong things, The, the answer isn't to say stop it. The chances are you already know you shouldn't be thinking on those things, right? 
If we do, you can't say stop it. The answer is this. In order to fight it, you must think on something that is opposite of it and greater than it is. That's how you do it. I want something that's opposite and greater than, and that's what this is. What is true, the word of God and just and pure and lovely, right? C.S. Lewis says, you can follow along with me. If we, and he's talking to believers here, Consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like ignorant Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And it's true. It's true. I'm not here to convict or say, but I I, I run into Christians who are far too easily pleased with binge watching as though that is the height of joy spend a life chasing after trinkets Paul says don't think on those things don't think on those things there's something greater to think on he gives us six things let me just run through them six things that we should be thinking upon that are infinitely greater than what this world offers I'll do this fast. Whatever is true. Church, spend time thinking on whatever is true. That means analyzing, reading, and meditating on what? The Word of God. Think on whatever is honorable. That means we're to think on that which is noble, that is dignified, with worthy of respect. Think on whatever is just. This is an adjective. It describes whatever is in perfect harmony with God's Word. Think on whatever is pure. That means morally clean, undefiled. Think on whatever is lovely. This word, it's only used here in the New Testament. No other place will you find this word. It means think on what's sweet. Think on what is generous. Think on what is patient. And finally, he says, think on whatever is commendable. Once again, this word is only found here in the Bible. It means think on those things that are regarded highly. That's us. That's what we think on these things. Oh, we're far too easily pleased. God has infinite joy. And then Paul summarizes it. He says, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, come on, church, come on, people of God, think about these things. Then we get to verse 9. The third thing he tells us to think on is think on Christian, I've said discipleship. Think on Christian discipleship. Now, once again, that's something we don't think enough about, I don't think. Um, Let me read verse 9. Or at least the first part, well, most of verse 9. What you have learned, he's speaking to the church, and received, and heard, and seen, and me, practice these things. Do them. Do them. 
Notice the word, this is what's interesting to me. Notice the words he uses. You can circle them if you want to, but it's really interesting. He says, what you have learned, what you have received, what you have heard, and what you've seen. Do them. Do them. So, not only are we to think on these God-honoring truths, we are to put them into action. And I would say, is that not just a pattern of Christian discipleship? You put into practice what you know to be true, what you've seen, what you've heard, what you've been taught. He says, real quickly, he says, put them into practice. And he, and he calls them, he summarizes, he says these things. And these things. And he gives us four things, kind of in two categories. He says, what you've learned and received. Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean? What? I'm to put into practice what I've learned and received. Okay, learned means this, what you have read in God's word. What you've studied in God's word, all right? You're to put that in practice. Then he said received, okay? That's referring to the good sermons you've heard, the teaching that you've received, okay? That's what he's talking about. So, what you have read in the Bible and learned, and then when you come to church and and, and a God-honoring sermon is preached, you receive that, you put that into practice, and then he says two other things. He says what you've heard, and that's in church, and what you've seen, and that would be among the, the, the other believers, he says, has seen in me, but that would refer to any, any, any godly, mature Christian, all right? So let me just, I've thought on this, and I want, I want to just kind of work out how, how it goes. This is how it works out. This is how, how it works out, okay? Um, I was raised, I, I grew up in a divorced family, all right? My, my parents got a divorce. So I did not grow up in a family where I could see what a God-honoring marriage looked like. Now, once again, I'm sure many of, many of you would say you have something similar. So the Lord saves me, and then um, I'm, in, I'm in high school, and I'm reading the, the, the Word of God, and I'm studying. And so as I'm reading the Word of God, I learn what a God-honoring marriage looks like, okay? Learn. I receive, learned, okay? So I'm reading what a God-honoring marriage looks like, so I learn. In addition to that, I would go to church. And then when I went to church, I heard some great sermons on what a godly marriage looked like. Okay, so that's the receiving. Okay, I've learned by studying. All right. And then I received by hearing. All right. Then in addition to that, while I was at church, I've talked about this before, I saw other godly husbands loving their wives. So now I've learned in the Bible, I've received through the, te- through the preaching, and then I've seen the working out among other b- believers. And in addition to that, I heard. I heard the way the men talk to their wives. So you take all that in, and now I practice it. I practice that. I practice what I've learned in the Bible. That's what I've read. I practice what I've received from godly teaching. I practice in my marriage what I've seen godly men do and what I've heard from their lips. That's what he's saying. And that's for all believers. What you've learned, what you've received, what you've seen, and what you've heard, put all of that into practice. That's what we're to do. That leads me to something else I want to briefly talk about. It's what, I've talked about this before, but it's, a, it, it's, a, it's appropriate to talk about it again here. 
I don't actually know if this is a real word, but um, I call the, uh, this the doctrine of, um, of um, imitation. The doctrine of imitation. Because the Apostle Paul says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, he says, practice. He's in front of us, he says, practice this. But that's not the first time he said that. Um, in 1 Thessalonians, he says to the church, become imitators of us and of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11, he says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I urge you. It's this, this, this begging, I urge you, imitate me. All right. Here's my question, church. Is that bad advice? This is bad advice to stand in front of new believers, young believers, and say, imitate me. <laughs> well, I imagine you might say, no, man, it's not bad. It's not wrong to say, imitate Paul. That's not my question. My question is this for you specifically Is it bad advice for you to stand in front of a young believer and say, imitate me? Not in a boastful way, not in a proud way, but in a godly way, say, imitate me. Have you ever done it? If you're a mature believer, have you ever done that? Have you ever gone in front of a young believer and say, imitate me? You don't know what to, hey, listen, you don't know what to do? Watch me. You don't know how to act? Watch me. The deal is, I don't think many of us do that, but um, I want to throw this out. I think we should. I think we should. Why would you not? If you're doing these things, right? If you're thinking about what is true and what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, and if you are putting them into practice, why would you not tell a young believer, imitate me? Lovingly, tell them, imitate me. No, I get it. You might be thinking, I do those things, but I don't do them perfectly. Neither did Paul. Paul didn't do this perfectly. But still, he says, imitate me. I would say this, and I just want to encourage you. It's okay to mess up in the Christian walk. Because then we repent and God forgives. I'm going to tell you right now, listen, listen to me, please hear me. I did not know what it looked like to repent until I saw a godly man sin and then repent of that sin. How was I to know? I didn't know what it meant to be a giver and a tither until the day I was in church and I saw a, a man who had very little money reach his calloused hands into his pocket, pull out money, and put it in the offering. And you know what I did? I imitated him. He taught me. I saw him. I thank God for the Christian men who loved their wives in front of me so I could see and I could hear and I could imitate. Church, I don't know. You may not be aware of this, but I want to make you aware of this. Even if you're not standing in front of young, new Christians and saying, imitate me, they're already doing it. If they see you attending church sporadically, they too will attend church sporadically. 
I remember the day I was in church and I saw this man beside me. The pastor says, turn to John, whatever, whatever the passage was. He pulls out this Bible and he opens it and like everything had been underlined and it was just this thick, well-used Bible. You know what, you know what I did next week? I brought my Bible. Why? Because someone told me no, because I saw a man who loved God doing it. And so we too want to, to do that. And I challenge you. Challenge you. If we're thinking on these things, and we're doing these things, it's okay, it's okay. People are going to watch, and we want them to. We want them to. Let's continue. The fourth thing we're supposed to think on is think on the promise. This is the end of verse 9. And the God of peace will be with you. What a staggering promise. What a staggering promise. Promise. So think about these, these two. Think about it. He's saying this. If you are actively thinking on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, and you're putting these things into practice, what you've learned, what you've received, what you've seen, and what you've heard, even if you don't do it perfectly, I get it, we none do. If you do those things, the promise is the God of peace will what? Be with you. Oh, come on. Who don't want that? Who don't want that? The God of peace himself, the God who gives peace will be with you. He says in the most shocking way, it's like God's going to draw near to you. If you're doing these things, he's going to be drawing near to you. Church, it matters what we think. It matters. We do not want to be a people who think by our gut. We do not want to be a people who think by our emotions. We do not want to be a people who just do whatever is most practical. We want to think biblically and godly. And God-honoring. We want to think on the Christian life. We want to think on God-honoring truths. We want to think on Christian discipleship. And then we want to think on the promise. Once again, just like last week, this will not happen by accident. Um, so a Monday, this Monday is going to be just as busy as last Monday, right? It is. And if you're sitting here today and you're saying, I want to think on these things, I want to meditate on these things, I want to dwell on these things, well, you're going to have to make room for that. It will not make room on its own. You will have to decide to think correctly. Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a six-week sermon series called Jesus in the Midst. John chapter 13 and 14 record Jesus' final words to his disciples in the upper room. They are about to enter the darkest moment in history, and Jesus shares with them the essentials of what they need to walk through them. You know, the things they needed in the midst of their darkest hour are the same things we need in ours. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses or online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. Lastly, there are so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing at Silverdale. We really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please stay connected. Be sure to like and follow us on all our different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. 
And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast. Take a moment to share this episode with your family and friends. Again, we appreciate you listening and hope you will join us again next time.